following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let, let me take you back to the playground. You're an elementary kid. You're on the playground. And in that moment, nothing is more enticing to you than to be at recess and know that there's a big, juicy secret lingering in the air. You know what I'm talking about? The, the taunts, you, maybe you remember this, the taunts of, I know a secret. Like somebody, somebody's saying that to you, it just, it just, your mind is running, you're racing, you got to do whatever it takes to get it, to get in the know on whatever that secret is, and it could lead to this game of chase and bribe all day long. Well, I'll give, you, I'll give you my Oreos if you tell me the secret. I'll tell you this secret if you tell me that secret, right? This barter system has, and it almost becomes obsessive where you have to be in the know. Like you just can't stop until you know what they know. And typically, I mean, we, hindsight here, we look back, what is this mystery usually? Or what's the secret? It's usually somebody's got a, a crush. Like Kyle and Laura sitting in a tree, right? K-I-S-S-I-N-G. It's some sort of crush gossip that's just running the playground. Well, today we come to the passage here in Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul is saying that the, it, there's a secret here. There's a mystery. There's one much better than finding out about a crush. Now, the word mystery is used in this passage six times, right? The, the word mystery or mysterion in the Greek. And it means something that is hidden, something that is unknown, something that is kept under wraps. But unlike the boast of the playgrounds, which says, I know and you don't, loser, the boast of Paul is, I know and I can't wait to tell you. 
I, I can't wait to let you in on what this secret is. You've got to hear it. Because this mystery that's been under wraps is now an open secret. It's no longer unknown. It's now an, a previously unknown thing, now made known. Paul had a revelation. He says this, it's been revealed to me. You can see my insight. He talks about this here as we read chapter 3. This, this revelation, this, the word revelation comes from the word apocalypse. Apocalypto is the Greek word. A lot of Greek today. Um, and, and what it means, the, the biblical definition, which is most often used when you hear revelation, or typically, or apocalypse, typically we, we jump to the book of Revelation, right? Revelation, apocalypse, the end of the world, doomsday, the, uh, the Armageddon, whatever. The, like, that's where our mind goes. But the, the biblical use, most common biblical use of the word revelation or apocalypse is that of revelation, something that was hidden, now made visible. It's this, this new, it's illumination. It's the light shines on it so people can see what was previously kept under wraps. Now, in this way, the book of Ephesians, you may not know this, but it could be categorized as apocryphal literature, apocalyptic literature, literature that points to a revelation, not the end of the world. Paul doesn't really talk about the end of the world here, but he's talking about the secret revelation that's been made in fact, you could argue that this is the main focus of the book of Ephesians. Now, other books of the Bible typically have some sort of circumstantial cause for why they were written. So like um, Paul writes to the Corinthians, they were messed up. Like a bunch of Christians, they professed faith in Jesus, but they were living like a bunch of hooligans. And Paul writes to them saying, hey, you guys, your house is all out of order. We've got to bring it back in line here. And then he writes 2 Corinthians later on because they've responded to his rebuke. They've put their faith in Jesus. They moved on. And Paul says, hey, I'm proud of you guys. Way to go. Galatians, the same thing. They, they came to faith, and the, the, the main rebuke that Paul has for them is, uh, how foolish of you to, to start your faith in the Spirit and then leave the Spirit, to leave the things of God, trying to manufacture righteousness in your own flesh. There's always this, not always, but, but typically we see this causal reason for Paul to write his letters. To Paul, or to, to Timothy, to Titus, pastoral, he's trying to train them up in the faith and ministry. But in Ephesians, we don't have a very clear reason. It's very generic in the sense. There's no, like, circumstantial thing that Paul's putting his finger on and saying, hey, you've got to address this. But the thing that you do see run throughout the whole course of the Bible, or the whole course of this book of the Bible, is the theme of mystery. Now, you see this right away in chapter 1. Paul talks about this in chapter 1, that, that there's been this... Um, let me see if I can find it. He says that there's been this, this wisdom and insight that's been made known to us to the mystery of his will according to his purpose. He talks about this later on in, in chapter 5 when he talks about um, husbands and wives, the marriage being pointing to the mystery of Christ. He talks about it in chapter 6. But really, he, he hunkers down here right smack dab in the middle of the book of Ephesians in chapter 3. Like literally, the middle, smack dab in the middle. Um, he focuses in here on the topic of mystery. It runs throughout the whole book. Now, we see Paul. So he, he, he starts in chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he kind of gets detoured. Whoop, detoured. Um, he gets detoured a little bit. He's going in to pray, and you can see that he, he repeats himself here as he goes into chapter, or verse 14 of chapter 3. He says the same thing, for this reason I bow my knees. So he's going to start praying. He says, for this reason I Paul, and he gets swept away in something. He gets detoured. What, what is this? Paul is getting swept up in the mystery 
that's become known to him, the open secret. It's right in front of him, and he is just reveling in it. He has this moment of just, oh, my goodness, the, the awe of it, the infatuation of the mystery. And as Paul is swept up, he wants to bring us into the mystery with him. Now, Christianity is unlike other religious systems, uh, other belief systems, uh, where, where in some religions, not all, um, there is some sort of hierarchy of wisdom. There's a hierarchy of insight, uh, of, of um, this illumination that, like, for example, Masons, right, um, you, you kind of have to go through the ranks and, and jump through a bunch of hoops, and then you get brought into the secrets and the secrets and the secrets, right? There's that sort of hierarchy, but Christianity is unlike that because, hey, here's the open secret, and everybody, everybody gets in on it. Anybody can get in on it. And in fact, this is one of Paul's main focuses for the whole, his whole life is to get the word out about this open secret that God has revealed. We're going to jump in here in verse 1. We're going we're to unpack what is this open secret. What's the open secret? How does the secret get unlocked? And what, what happens when we are in on the secret now? That's where we're really the three phases of the sermon. So let's, let's take a look here. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, here he goes, getting ready to pray, but detoured. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. There's that apocalyptos. It was, it was revealed to me as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight. You can perceive my illumination into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So Paul opens up here, and he, he makes us aware of this reality that there is an ancient secret that exists. He talks about this. And in verse 9, he keeps on going that it's a secret that's been kept for ages in God. He says there, there are previous generations that had no idea what this was pertaining to. They knew the mystery existed, but they did not know what the mystery exactly was. Now, what is the mystery? What is, what is kind of under wraps? In Ephesians 1, 19, it says, it's the mystery of God's will according to his purpose. Or another way to say this is, it's the mystery of what God is up to in this world and how he sets out to accomplish that. That's the mystery. Now, through the Old Testament, God would communicate to his people that he did have a plan for the world, that he was up to something. Now, th this all was set in motion here in Genesis chapter. So God begins by creating the world beautiful, good. Everything was good and right and perfect. And Adam and Eve rebelled against God, fell into sin, and all of creation started coming undone. Relationship with God was fractured. Rel they started blaming one another. Marital issues started right there in Genesis chapter 3. All, all sort of interpersonal relationships, shame, guilt. I mean, the, the thor thor uh, roses started popping thorns. Animals started to eat each other. Just the whole thing started falling apart. And, and this, when God looks at the fallen state of the world, that was not what he intended for his creation. And so he has this impulse. I, I, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to set things back to how they are meant to be. And so God promises to his people that he's going to do something to make things right. 
and he's dropping these hints all throughout history, okay? So, so he goes even as far, far back as the Garden of Eden when he promises Adam and Eve that he's going to crush the serpent's head. He drops this promise. I'm going I'm to deal with the enemy who led you down this path. He talks about this eternal kingdom, the, the kingdom of David that's going to be an eternal kingdom that keeps going and going and going. He talks about how he's going to restore his people. He's going to heal their sicknesses, their infirmities, going to forgive them of their sins. He's going to bless the nations. God keeps on telling these people, this is what I'm up to in the world. This is where I am taking things. Yet there's this hiddenness about what God is doing. In fact, in Isaiah 43, he speaks through the prophet Isaiah. He says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now God is keying us into this fact here that he's doing something. He's up to something. But, but our eyes are blurry. We can't exactly see it all clearly. Now all of the prophecies that we see from the Old Testament are like, Pieces in a mosaic, okay, like, like the little shards of glass that, that in themselves, there, there's some beauty there, right? All of the little promises that God makes to his people, there's something to be appreciated about that thing. But really what God is trying to show, all of these are contributing to a larger piece, a larger work of art. And the only way that you can really see it, the only way you can understand it is if you have a God-sized vision of what he is doing. You have to have this cosmic vantage point, which is why Deuteronomy 29 says that the secret belongs to God. God's the only one who can really see what he's up to in the world. Up to this point, the secret is kept under wraps. But here in Ephesians, Paul says, hey, this is all changing. This whole thing, the lid has been blown off. The secret is now out and open. It's no longer hidden. It's no longer under wraps. And he says this here in, in verse, let me see where it's at here. In verse 4, which says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations, but now it's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. See, God has given an apocalypse, this, this revelation. He's uncovered what has been hidden, and it is now an open secret. Leslie Newbegin says that this open secret, this is a really important phrase for us to understand, because it's not that uh, the, the idea of mystery means that it's kept quiet forever, right? If it's a mystery, it's unknown. How can you know? Well, Paul is saying, like, this is actually the inverse. It was previously hidden, and now it's open. Now it's known. Now you can see what's going on. That is an open secret. So Leslie Newbegin says it's open in that it is preached to all the nations. See, it, it, it's a, a message that's open, that's available to all people, but it's secret in the fact that it is manifest only to the eyes of faith. That takes spiritual eyes to see this spiritual reality that God is communicating to his people. Now, in verse 9, Paul says that it's his mission to make it known to all the people. Let me take it. It says, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace, this grace, this message of grace was given to me. In fact, he goes back earlier and talks about the gospel of grace. It was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone. See that? To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says, listen, it's my mission. This is his life goal here. 
to make, to, to, to shed the light on this for everybody. Now, Paul has already been talking about this previously because he mentions, hey, uh, you may have already heard of this insight that I've had that I've been communicating to you, how I've written about this briefly. He's flashing back to the last two chapters of Ephesians 1 and 2 where he's been talking about it. And really what he does here is he summarizes in verse 6 what he's been communicating throughout where he says this. Here is the mystery. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles, verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now what is the significance of this? Because if you just read this, you know, kind of like at face value, it's not going to really hit that hard because it really depends on having some idea of the context of this. So all of, all of the previous promises of God, all the things that God said that he was going to do in the world were for the benefit of his people, the Jewish people, Israel. He says, these are the people that I'm going to bless. Through them, I'm going to bless the nations, but it's them. They're, they're my primary target of who I'm going to bless, who, who's going to be in on the benefits of my promises and my work in this world. And now Paul says, it's not just the Jews. It's not, not just an ethnic thing. But now it's open to all the people, all of the nations, all of the tongues, all of the tribes get access to what God is doing and the promises of God now trickle over to them as well. So here's what it is. Now, and this is good news for you because I would guess, I don't know everybody's ethnicity in this room, but I would guess that the, the bulk of us here are Gentiles. We have zero Jewish lineage in our bloodstream. Maybe you do, okay, great. But most of us don't. So this is good news for us because what Paul is saying here, now at one point it was just the nation of Israel, just the ethnic people of Jewish, the ethnic, ethnicity of Jews that were benef beneficiaries of this, and now it's open to us. The outsiders, the Gentiles, are now given the same privileges, and what happens is they are united in Christ. So we saw this back in chapter 2 where, where Paul says, out of the two, God brings forth the one new man. So out of the two, two men, out of the Jews and the Gentiles, God brings forth this new humanity where Jew and Gentile are fellow heirs. They are one body and partakers of the promise. This is the good news. The gospel is going out for all people. And Paul's mission is to bring this open secret to the Gentiles and to pump it out to as many people as they can possibly hear. Now, what this does, it, it, it reveals the inclusive nature of Christianity. The benefits of the gospel are open to anybody. There's, there's nobody who, who will get pushed out when you come to Christ. The arms of Jesus are wide open, ready to receive all people, regardless of your social status, your ethnicity, your culture. Uh, yeah, I mean, go down the list. Your upbringing, any sort of things that contribute to who you are as a person, none of those things can stand in the way of Jesus and the gospel for you. In fact, God, the, Christianity, this is really interesting. There was a study that Barna released a couple weeks ago that I saw, uh, I think Tim Keller posted it up on Instagram. But the, it is a breakdown uh, uh, geographically, what are the dominant world religions and where are they located at in the world? Christianity was the most diversified, wide-ranging world religion across every nation, continent, 
social, economic status. It, it doesn't matter what kind of person you are. There is representation in those people groups of those who have put their faith in Jesus. Now, unlike some of those other ones where it's really bound by geography, so like um, Hinduism is really mostly in the Eastern world. Same with Buddhism. Like all the, the, those Eastern religions are mostly centralized there. Well, Christianity actually started over there and now has been imported throughout the world and there's representation. So we see this inclusive nature of Christianity. And what this shows us is, is both the unity that the gospel creates in the church, but also the diversity. So when you come to Jesus, it's not you drop your ethnicity. It's, it's not like you... you this is one of the, the major flaws that's happened in evangelical Christianity as we go do world missions. You go to Africa and you bring the gospel message with you and you, at the same time you import white European culture with it. And their idea is Christianity looks like what white European people do. But that's not the case. Like you get to retain your, your culture, your identity, your, all those things stay intact. But now the gospel gives you a new bond that links you to a new family. So we are both unified and diverse. And in this, this, this is what says that like the, the, the existence of the church is, is the manifestation of the wisdom of God. That's what Paul says here. He says, um, where's it at? In verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Look at it so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So it's here in this, the church, the existence of the church shows the manifold, the multifaceted wisdom of God in effect. Specifically in how, going back again to chapter two, how God reconciles us to one another, like that Jew, Gentile, um, there was a, a wall of hostility, uh, literally a physical wall, but also just a socio a social wall of hostility. God tears that down, brings them together. There's diversity in the body of Christ. He reconciles people to one another at the same time reconciling us back to God himself. And so we see that the secret, this open secret that Paul is preaching is an answer to some of the most profound questions our humanity is asking us. Like, how can we get along? How can we coexist with one another? Well, the gospel is the only solution that brings this reconciliation. The, the, the horizontal implications uh, become made known, right? Where we can actually have peace, have brotherly affection for people who aren't like us. At the same time, answering the problem of, man, we, we just feel alienated from God. The gospel brings us together and brings us to God. But according to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, like, that's part of it, but even still, it blows up bigger. See, it, you see the Jews and Gentiles being brought together as one, right? From the two, the new man emerges. Well, it, it goes even further than that because back in Ephesians 1, chapter 9, Paul says this. He says that God's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight the riches of, oh, backwards. Uh, he lavished upon us all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, here it is, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, the plan of God, the thing that he's trying to do 
in this world is to unite heaven and earth together. See, that, that's really what, what Eden was. It was this overlap of the physical earthly world and, and the heavenly spiritual realm. There was, there was a, a unity there, and then in the fall, they got pulled apart. And God says, you know what? I'm not just going to create an Eden. I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. That's in fact what the book of Revelation, John's big writing at the end of your Bible is all about. This new heavens and new earth, this new place where God will dwell among his people, where everything will be set right. All of the tears will be wiped away. Everything sad becomes untrue. Everything is redeemed, restored, and reunited back to God. What's broken is mended. What was once alienated is brought near. This is what God is doing in the world. It's this cosmic renovation. But the question is, okay, cool, God, <laughs> but how? <laughs> how are you going to do this? See, this, this is the part that, that every time God would call people to kind of step into this, they would fail. Right? He, he's caused people to be this, this nation that demonstrates the glory of Jesus, that they, they would already have some of this, this um, culture embedded in them, this, where there's love and care and hospitality for the outsider. But, but the, 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 the nation of Israel failed at this. In fact, everybody that God called to himself for his purposes would eventually fail in one way or another. Moral failure, complete abandonment from the purposes of God, some way, some shape, or form, they would blow it. And so the question is like, God, how are you going to make this mystery? How, how, are you, how are you going to make this mystery manifest? Actually bring it about. How are you going to bring it to be? How are these things going to be redeemed and reunited? And the key to fulfilling God's secret plan revolves around a Messiah. We, the, the, the Greek word, which we see a lot, we say, we say Jesus Christ, right? The word Christ is not Jesus' last name contrary to popular belief. Christ is a title. It's a title that represents, in the Greek, the, the Jewish Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah is an office. It's a position. It's a role that was meant to be filled by somebody who would come up. Now, a lot of people, if you go back, they thought that King David was going to be the Messiah. He was the one that was going to lead Israel out of captivity, bring him into this place of flourishing, but then eventually, well, it didn't work out for David. But the word Messiah means anointed one. It means the fulfiller of promises, the deliverer. Now, here's the unique thing. Like, in the Old Testament, the prophets, they knew the office of Messiah existed, but they didn't know who filled it. Paul here sits on the other side of a, a, a monumentous event in history where now he can stand, stand and say definitively, here is the Messiah, and he points to the man, Jesus Christ. In fact, he names him in verse 1 through 4. It, it's, he says, listen, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's, it's this man, this Christ, this Messiah, who I am in service to. He names the mystery. So here even is it's a profound thing that happens where it goes from being the mystery of God to now the mystery of Christ. Who is it pertaining to? It's pertaining to this person, Jesus. It's through the person and work of Jesus that God's plan will be fulfilled. And Paul heralds this message as he proclaims the gospel of grace. Now, why is the gospel of grace considered to be a mystery? Mysteries don't tend to make sense initially. There's this counterintuitive, subversive sort of tendency that happens within mysteries where, you know, eventually, it, once you see what the mystery is, it's been revealed, it's like, oh, right. But initially, it's, 
It's concealed. It's hidden. It's hard to see. Now, it's interesting because the, the Ten Commandments, they're never considered to be a, a mystery, right? The rules that God lays out for his people to live a good life, to, to enter into, and that's what the, the Ten Commandments really are, the way of flourishing, right? Follow these ten rules, and it'll be like heaven and earth have actually come down together as one. If everybody were to do it, but that's not a mystery. It's never considered a mystery because it's too logical. It's straightforward. It, it makes perfect sense that if you follow these rules, good things will happen, right? Live out the golden rule, love God, love people, do the right thing always. Well, God will hear your prayers. God will bless you, and eventually he'll, you know, you'll get a punch your ticket and get to heaven. That makes pretty good sense. But that's not a mystery. In fact, if your version of Christianity, that's one of the things that Paul considers Christianity to be is a mystery. There's a profound mystery that's taking place right here. And if your version of Christianity is trying to keep the rules, that's not the gospel. In fact, that, there's no mystery involved in that at all. Duh, 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 duh. Here's your payout, right? Invest this, get this at the end. In fact, every religion kind of spouts this cadence of do the right things, be a good person, at the end, punch your ticket, you're getting in, you're going to the good place. Especially, like, listen, especially our secular culture, which thinks that they, there are no rules, they have their own unspoken rules, right? And a lot of them are bogus rules. They don't make sense. But you, if you want to not get canceled, if you want to make it and not get labeled a bigot or, or whatever it is, or your life to go smooth for you, you've got to comply to these rules, and then at the end, you'll get a thumbs up and people will approve of you. There's no mystery involved in this because the bottom line of, of nearly every world religion of, of following the secular code is to do the right stuff and then you'll be approved of. Then, then you'll be accepted, then you'll be loved, then you'll get to heaven or whatever that version of heaven is. Now, you can choose to live into that. In fact, a lot of people try to. There's some people in this room that, that you need to be deprogrammed of that idea of Christianity. And you can try to live this way of always doing the right thing, trying to follow steps, follow the rules, be a good little boy, and Jesus will pat you on the head and give you a thumbs up and a pat on the back and a little sticker. You can try it, but eventually it'll crush you. Because when you break the rules, and you will eventually... They'll break you. That's how they work. That's how God's commandments work. Break the rules, they break you. Crush the rules, they crush you. But the gospel is wildly different. This is why Paul says it's a mystery. It's super counterintuitive because it's not about my ability to follow the, world, the rules in order to gain God's blessing. It's not about my ability to follow through and be a good boy and get the pat on the back. It's not about that. It's not about me trying to earn my way into heaven. The gospel is that Jesus obeyed the rules that I couldn't live. He obeyed the rules that you couldn't live. And when he did that, he gave you access to all of the blessing that he earned in living a perfect life. Jesus takes what I deserve. See, I break the rules. You break the rules. I don't have to know you more than two seconds to know that you break the rules. We break the rules, and what that means is that we deserve to be placed under God's wrath. But Jesus, instead, he takes our place. He, he perfectly obeys all of the rules that God laid out. Every single one of them. Perfectly obeyed. And, and what does perfect obedience typically earn you? Reward, praise, accolades, right? Well, Jesus did that, and what's he do instead? He takes our place on the cross. So that I could have, so that you could have his blessing. 
so that you could be accepted, so that you could be brought in. This is why the gospel doesn't make sense. At least at face value. Like, why should I gain from his reward? Why do I get what's good and he gets the curse? But it's not just this. The whole business of the gospel is mysterious because Jesus wins by losing. He shows his power in humility and weakness. Jesus shows that to be first, you must be last. Jesus mends the cosmos by being torn apart. And he starts that mending by reconciling us to one another and to God himself. So you can't tell me, you can't look at this and say, this is not counterintuitive. This doesn't mean torn apart to be made whole. It, it, it is a mystery. The gospel is just laced with mystery. Which means that when you become a Christian, you enter into a mysterious experience. This is where, like, dogma and, and, and just religiosity can undermine the Christian life. You just miss out. You feel like it's do this, do this, do this, and then I'll get my thumbs up later. And you just miss out. Because the mystery is so sweet. You enter into this mysterious Experience it. And Luther kind of shed some light in this, that, that when you become a Christian, that when your faith is in Jesus, he says this is true about you. You're simultaneously a sinner and a saint. That you're simul justice et peccator. That you're simul simultaneously justified and a sinner. That, that in one sense, you're a terrible sinner. That actually, you're worse than you ever thought. That your sin is more prevalent in your life than you think. It's more destructive than you think. And it's, it's running your life like you wouldn't even think. And at the same time, you're an accepted saint. That God looks at you through the lens of Christ and says, you're holy, you're loved, you're accepted. And so you have these two natures that every Christian has. That's why on Sunday mornings when we come together, one of the things that we do every single week is confess our sins. Because like in one sense, we've been made saints. Paul talks about that at the beginning of Ephesians. You've been made a saint. You're, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own position. You have all of these glorious truths that are true about you in Christ, but at the same time, you're still embedded in the flesh. And that's why we come and we confess our sins every Sunday together. You have these two natures. You're both righteous and ratchet. You're a holy rule breaker. But this is where the gospel meets us and it gives us great comfort because it, no matter how bad of a rule breaker I am, no matter how ratchet I am, I am always accepted because of the work of Christ. Nothing I do can add to or take away from the work that Jesus has accomplished in the gospel. It's by sheer grace we are saved. And it's a gift from God. It's not from you. It's not yourself. It's not your own doing. Now, you might be hearing this open secret for the first time. See, this is the, this is the open secret, the, the gospel of grace that Paul is proclaiming to the nations. And if you're hearing this gospel message, the open secret for the first time, and you want in, that's awesome. Praise God. I've been praying for that all week. But this is not an insight that you can manufacture or achieve or work your way to in yourself. See, Paul says that this insight has to be given. 
This is insight that is bestowed, which makes it accessible to anybody, whether you're, you know, you've got a, I don't even know what the IQ scale is, so that's showing my IQ, but whether you're a dummy dum-dum or you're like the super smartest world in, guy in the world, it doesn't matter. You, you don't have to achieve your way into this understanding. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the revelator. That's what God says here, or what Jesus, or what Paul says here. God's saying it through Paul. He says, where's it at here? I know it's here. Found it. It says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight to the mystery of Christ. This is verse 4 or 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in earlier generations, as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. How? By the Spirit. It's been revealed by the Spirit. The Spirit opens our eyes to see. He illuminates this gospel truth. In fact, in verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 through 10, he talks about how, how the Spirit, how God through the Spirit lavishes us with this insight, this wisdom. The Spirit pours us out, so it's not like we're, we're um, it's not like God's being stingy, that we can only understand it this much. But the Spirit just keeps pouring out this wisdom and insight and understanding until we fill, 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 fill ourselves up, and he makes known to us the mystery of his will, this open secret. That's what the Spirit does. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would do that work this morning and open our eyes to look into the mystery of Christ. Whether this be your first time, let this be the 100,000th time that you come to look at the gospel. See, the gospel isn't something, Tim Keller says this, I got a lot of Tim Keller stuff going in my head right now. Tim Keller says the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life where you go, okay, boom, 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 first three steps, and I'm good from here, and I you know, jump and do my own thing. He says it's the A through Zs. There's never a moment in your Christian life where you do not need to behold the gospel because it is for everything in life and in godliness for you. In fact, Peter, as he's writing his first epistle, he says that angels, the, the, the hosts of heaven, long to look into this gospel, long to catch a glimpse of what's going on in this mystery. Why? Because they don't get to have the access to the same thing that we do. For the angels, the fallen angels, there is no redemption. That, the, the, the book of Revelation talks about that. God throws them out. He casts them out. But for us, God gives us a second chance. God gives us grace so that we could know redemption and be reunited to our creator. They, they don't get grace. We do. God sets his grace upon sinners and failures like me and you in order to bless us and to redeem us. Now, if this is the case, if this is the open secret that's made, laid out right in front of us, we ought to be people who obsess over the gospel. Not just Sunday mornings. Like, I love this. Sunday mornings, love it. But every moment of every day, have this, this sort of bit of wonder that's just kind of in the back of your mind. Like, how could it be? How is it that God would look at me and give me all of the blessing that Christ could serve? to med meditate on it day and night. Not, not just the law of the Lord. Like, that's what the psalm is like. The, the law of the Lord is good. And yes, we love the law of the Lord. Jesus affirms the law of the Lord. But what's even sweeter, what's even more good is the gospel of grace. And when we behold this, we get swept up in the mystery. We begin to revel in it, to daydream about it. And, and when you do this, what's gonna happen? Just like Paul, you can't help but to tell other people about it. This access, this approval, this love, this blessing that you've received in Christ, 
It is also for your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your mother-in-law, whoever it might be that does not yet know Jesus. It's for them too. Now, everything, everything in this world operates by the law of diminishing returns. You drink one cup of coffee, you do that every day for a month. Month two, you probably got to drink two cups of coffee to maintain that same level of caffeination. I mean, like, I'm like at a pot of coffee a day at this point in my life. <clears throat> There's this law of diminishing returns, whether it's with drug use or just the straight out like joy and excitement, right? There's, there's always, you always gotta crave more, always something else, add it to it, add it to it. But the gospel is the only thing that defies this law of diminishing returns. There's nothing bigger, there's no way to add to it. It's already the biggest thing, it's already the best thing that's in this world. There's nothing better or sweeter or more joyful but the more that you meditate, the more you come to it and hold fast to it, the sweeter it gets. See, the more you drink deeply of it, the more it fills you with joy and comfort and freedom and love. Not, not in a way where it needs to be restocked because it's diminishing, but because you just want more and more and more and more and more. And as you do this, you're always seeing new things. You're always going deeper into the reality of grace. Keller says, listen, if you think that you understand the gospel, if you go, yeah, I get it, you probably don't get it. If that's your attitude, yeah, I get it. I know, I, 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 shh. I get it. Yeah, yeah, shh, 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 shh. Shorter sermons. I don't need Bible study. I already got, I got it. I know it. I got it. Don't need. If that's your mentality, you don't get it. But if you can say, man, I can hardly grasp. I can hardly get my mind around. I can hardly get my heart to just like latch on to. It just seems so too good to be true. You might be getting it then. And God wants to bring you more and more and more into this open circuit. Father, we thank you that you have not kept yourself hidden from us, that this plan that you have for the world is not to leave us in despair, not to leave us in a place where we've got to work ourselves out and try to, you know, redeem ourselves as, as secular worldviews and, and other false religions claim that we've got to do. We've got to be, it's like, Jesus, you were better. You were the best. You did it all for us, and we're recipients of your grace. You, you bless us, you accept us, you love us, we praise you, and we just wanna, we wanna pour out our praise to you for doing that. Thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, the mystery has been revealed, and for those of us who are not yet in Christ, you are pursuing, and you are shedding a light. You, you, even in this, in this sermon, to be present, God, you are at work communicating the glorious truths of the gospel to those who are far from you, that you would bring them near. I pray that you would do that this morning. Use this church, use us. We'll be your heralds of this mystery that's been made known for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray all this for his glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.